staccato handguns are trusted and approved by over 900 elite law enforcement agencies, including 65 SWAT teams. When it comes to accuracy and reliability, the choice is easy with staccato. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to Policing Matters, and hopefully you're watching us on YouTube. And I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, the movies show us exactly how SWAT works. It shows us the realism of forensic science in policing and, of course, cut to the helicopters, searchlights, the hold-up hostage taker, and the hostage negotiator. Bright light behind them, serious music, approaching on foot, arms extended without cover, wearing no protection at all aside from the nylon windbreaker that says hostage negotiator across the back. Well, if you believe all that, I've got a bridge to sell you. Of course, you know, Hollywood and TV uh, presents these false narratives that a lot of my students believe. Well, in reality, only a small percentage of law enforcement officers become crisis negotiators, and they understand the reality of impromptu callouts with little information and less than ideal settings from which to work from. My guest today is Jonathan Pultz a 25-year veteran of the Los Angeles Police Department and author of the book, Negotiating Like Lives Are on the Line. John is currently a tactical team leader with the department's SWAT team and a crisis negotiator. And John has a master's degree in dispute resolution and a certificate in negotiation mastery from Harvard Business School Online. We're going to talk about that. But welcome to Policing Matters, Jonathan Pultz. Hi, Jim. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here with the Evangelist of Law Enforcement. I'm so excited and to uh, have an op opportunity to talk to the Police One uh, viewers. This is uh, this is great. And I'm looking forward to talking about crisis negotiation and all the things that go with it. Yeah, great. Thank you for the Evangelist title. That's a new one for me. Hey, I've got your book right here. Thank you for that. It's great. It's a quick read. It's got a lot of great information and some personal insight. Uh, how close does it come to reality when, when we see these hostage negotiation scenes in TV and movies? Is it anything like reality? No, not at all. I mean, obviously, you know, we played up for drama and you have a viewership, but crisis negotiation, it's, it's very labor intensive. There's a lot of planning and preparation that go into it. I mean, we're talking about someone's life is at stake here. And it's not just the life of, you know, either the person who's in crisis or the offender that doesn't want to go to jail. You have to worry about your, yourself and your team and make sure they're in good positions. And then you're also not only responsible for that microcosm of what's going on, but these scenes have family members and friends in the community watching. So it is of the utmost important for officers to do the best possible job when dealing with these situations, because the optics of, of what could happen during that situation can really reflect badly on an agency and their personnel. So when you see in Hollywood, that hostage negotiator, crisis negotiator who you know, he's an alcoholic or she's an alcoholic. They're, you know, haunted by the demons of their past. And, you know, they're just winging it, going out on the ledge with uh, no protection, walking into an apartment with an armed gunman, uh, hands up, wearing, like you said, a windbreaker. No, that, that doesn't happen at all. Uh, we're very calculated. Uh, we're very well trained. And we do the best with the situation, we, the information we have at hand. 
And we have a very good uh, success rate and, and we, we learn from it. You know, we constantly debrief and talk about what went well, what went wrong, we're honest, and we're always looking for those ways to improve ourselves. And, and you talked about a little bit in the introduction, it's anything you're going to do, as everyone knows, it's, it's work, right? Uh, so when I got into the hostage negotiation stuff, I, I looked for ways I can make myself better. And, you know, it was educating myself with uh, different programs, certificates, suicide hotline, becoming a peer counselor, all things, you know, to help me understand and increase my interpersonal skills so that I could have a better rapport with people. Yeah, no, great stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm writing notes because you're, you're making me think of the new technology involved. And um, I've seen some great systems like uh, Vertra and Milo. And at the very least, they give the officer the experience of talking to someone on a ledge or in a crisis situation where, at least through repetition, it, it puts ideas in your mind of what you would say in a real situation. Right. And, and like we talk about in law enforcement, it's good to be able to revert back to your training. So to have that baseline and, and something to kind of refer to, some sort of standard operating procedure, obviously, when you're dealing with the human factor, it's not always um, cut and dry or black and white because people do things that you don't expect of them. And it, it happens all the time. So you have to be prepared for those contingencies and have alternate plans to go in different directions. But when you have that baseline, like anything else, it's going to be there for you to refer back to. Um, I remember uh, being a kid uh, growing up, I was an athlete and um, I heard a sports psychologist talk about Larry Bird, right? One of the greatest basketball players of all time. And what Larry said is whenever his game wasn't going real well, like he couldn't make a shot or he's having trouble defending, he would concentrate on his dribbling, you know, one of the most basic skills. Uh, for me, whenever things start to get overwhelming or heated, uh, I try to kind of control that situation and I'll just say, you know, are you okay? Calm down. Let's start over. You know, my name is John. I'm here to help you. And and those little things, those little human connections, uh, for me, that's that's like that standard operating procedure or something I can always fall back on because uh, especially in California, we deal with so much mental illness as police officers these days and Unfortunately, a lot of them are self-medicating with legal street narcotics, and that really adds a wrinkle and a very tough set of circumstances for, you know, people to deal with. And I don't think the general public really understands the extent of uh, the mental incapacity we deal with on a, a lot of times and the dangers it can possibly lead to. Yeah, of course, one of your chapters is called Alcohol, Drugs, and the Mentally Insane. I'm guessing you discuss uh, the difficulty in rationalizing with those types. You just talk about, um, you know, that added dimension of mental illness and self-medicating. And, uh, you know, in your profession and as a hostage negotiator or a crisis negotiator, uh, you've got to start from a baseline of some some ability to rationalize with this other person. But in, in some of these cases, there there's not a drop of rationalization, is there? There is, you know, it, but it's an exercise in patience, right? We, we always like the saying in law enforcement is time is on our side, but I'm, I'm going to say that that's not always true, right? Uh, as someone like yourself, Jim, who worked in the upper management of a large police department, you know, right? You have radio calls, you have stuff that has to be done and you're tying up units for several hours on an incident 
and we're trying to be patient and we're trying to rationalize with an individual who may be in crisis. But if the rest of your city or your agency is falling apart, then as a negotiator, I've been asked several times, hey, you need to speed this up or we're going to hand it over to tactics, right? And that's just the reality of it. Um, you know, in in the civilian world or the business world, uh, when you talk about negotiation, walking away is a big part of making deals. People can cool off, they can take pauses, they can reflect on their deals. With For the most part, we can't just walk away from these situations. And I'm sure we'll get into some walk away stuff because there is some issues with that. But someone calls you for a crisis, it's either you're going to solve it now or you'll probably be back trying to solve it later. So we are committed to it. So we can't always walk away. And then especially with dealing with, um, you know, people who are addicts or they have mental illness, if it's if it's a family type environment, one of the things I advise is patience, right? You're probably not going to solve this situation in one day. It's going to take, you know, incremental uh, counseling sessions and being there for that person and just working on them, chipping away. Because at the end of the day, the biggest thing is you you have to instill in people that they have the ability to help themselves. If they're constantly relying on people, then they're always going to rely on people. But if you give them like those little windows of hope and achievement, they can do great things with it. That's that's one of the things I, I really like about Suicide Hotline. First time I went to Suicide Hotline, I got uh, thrashed because I tried to solve my first caller's problems. And they're like, no, you can't do that. Give them confidence, teach them how to solve their own problems. And and that's what a lot of these skills are about is, you know, not only solving problems where you can, but teaching people to solve their own problems so that they're better off in society. Well, that's counterintuitive to policing, right? I mean, we learn from day one in the academy. Our job is to go out there and problem solve. Right. And now here, instead of catching the fish, you are handing the fishing pole over and saying, I'll see you later. Yep. So your book, your book is so impressive. Uh, you have two dozen chapters that cover incidents, training, active listening, empathy, so much more. How did you prioritize? What do you want? Name three things you want cops to know and take away from your book. So I would say the three things I would say that from this book that I want you to take away would be properly plan and prepare, whether you're on patrol or you have a high profile incident or you're setting up some sort of search warrant or tactical exercise, do your due diligence on the front end. Get as much information as you can because when these things that come up that are out of your control happen, you're gonna have everything else under control, right? So know everything you can and there's, we have so much better advancements in finding information these days that, you know, the databases are better. The open source information is better. I love social media because people will just tell you anything you want about them. Right. So use those things to your advantage, properly plan and prepare empathy. Empathy is a word right now that is thrown around all over the place. And my definition of empathy for, you know, our law enforcement brothers and sisters out there is you don't have to agree with someone that you're dealing with, but Allow yourself to see their perspective and deal with it from that angle. Mm. At least it creates some sort of rapport or understanding. Uh, in the first chapter, I have a, a negotiation with a gentleman named George. And George is a 19-year-old kid. He got into a domestic dispute with his girlfriend. And in a rage of frustration, he ends up cutting uh, the girlfriend's aunts and a toddler with a knife. 
right? So as a father, that's very hard to see, you know, any sort of sympathy or empathy with someone who's going to hurt children and women and then flee from the police. But when I'm out there and I'm negotiating with George, I know my job is not to, you know, condemn him or I need to talk him into custody. And, and the way I did that was, okay, you know what? I've been in relationships that went bad. I got frustrated. I've had my heart broken, right? So I'm being empathetic to a situation and the frustrations. Again, I don't agree with him, but I'm putting myself in his shoes to be able to hopefully find a mutual beneficial resolution for everyone involved. And then the third thing is active listening, right? And I think, Jim, you just hit it on us police officers. We are so focused on handling problems that we just go straight into it. And a lot of times, if we just slow down, allow people to vent, listen to them, listen to what their concerns are, you'd be surprised how many times that your problem will solve itself because they'll tell you exactly what they want done or they don't want done. And a lot of times we're assuming what needs to be done because we probably have, you know, four calls waiting or, uh, you know, other priorities that are that are going on. But, you know, we have to remember at the end of the day, we are public servants. We're there to serve the community. And taking a few minutes to listen to that person's problems, it, it's going to help you. And uh, when I talk about active listening, one of the best definitions I found on it was uh, by James Pyle. He wrote a book. Um, called Control the Conversation. And he says active listening is as easy as pie, right? Because there's so many things when you read active listening, right? There's uh, eight principles. There's all these different types of active listening. But if you can remember active listening is easy as pie, I think this is the best thing you can do. It's physical, it's intellectual, and it's emotional. When people are talking to you and you're listening to them, you're not just listening with your ears. You're observing their body language. What is their body language telling you? Are they mad? Are they sad? Are they upset? Are they frustrated, right? It's intellectual where you're processing the information and deciphering what they're saying. How are they, you know, uh, internalizing the information that you're giving them? And then it's emotional. You know, what does their voice inflection tell you? Uh, do certain subjects cause a different behavior? So by using your ears, your eyes, and your senses, that's true active listening. Active listening is easy as pie. So if, if I could get every officer out there to take these three things to heart, I think it would make their job a lot easier, and it would make them, it'd give them the ability to articulate a lot better. And especially when it comes to things like court, whether it's civil or criminal, it's going to make them look so much better in the light of a jury. Because we all know these officers are out here, they're doing the best they can their intentions are right, but sometimes just don't always come across the right way. Mm. Yeah. And, and you just said what reminded me about one of your chapters about hooks and triggers, and you're going to get that from active listening, right? If you're only thinking about the next thing you're going to say, you're going to miss it. But uh, tell us about that. Uh, hooks and triggers. You're, you're making notes. You're listening to what this individual is saying to you. What do you do with that information? Right. So hooks and triggers. So hooks are generally uh, pieces of information that are going to allow you to expand your your conversation. There are things that your your counterpart is probably going to want to talk about. Um, whenever I get on scene, I always like to interview family members or friends or, you know, whoever's around. And the first thing I ask is, you know, if, if I'm trying to meet with you, Jim, I'm like, OK, tell me about Jim. You know, what are things that Jim likes to talk about? You know, what got him here today? Who are the people in his life that he cares about? So those are the hooks. So I'll make a list of, of hooks. These are these are potential 
topics of interest that I can talk to this person and build a rapport and begin a conversation. Triggers are just the opposite. They are pieces of information that are going to elicit probably a heated response. So for example, if you're in a domestic violence situation and someone's barricaded because they got into an altercation with their significant other, then that may be something you don't want to kind of hit on right away. However, sometimes um, people who love to complain, right? Uh, triggers might be just the tool you need to, to get them to open up. If there's something they hate, sometimes a trigger is perfect because at least it will get them talking. But you need to weigh your hooks and your triggers and how they, you know, how they're going to play out in this conversation. You know, what are your potential liabilities with using these? What are your benefits? And then you're going to have a bunch of information that kind of falls in the middle. You're not sure. And, and that's going to come down to you being a good investigator. As you start building rapport and asking questions, um, you're going to build up. Uh, Lena Sisko, who has a great uh, book called Honest Answers, she was an interrogator, and she has a technique she calls laddering. And it's great for crisis negotiators or hostage negotiators because you're starting with those small questions and you're basically moving your way up the ladder. And that's if you see it like that in your mind, hmm. it's systematic, it gives you a game plan, and you're working your way up to those big questions. And along the lines, you're going to have those in between pieces of information where hopefully you can kind of determine where they fall. Are these more hooks? Are they more triggers? Or should I just leave it alone altogether? So hooks and triggers are great for anyone out there on the street or anyone who's doing any sort of investigative work. Again, it just, like I said, I can't hit it enough. Plan, prepare, identify your hooks and triggers and use that information to get what you need. Right. Yeah. I mean, your book is is really good. Not just in, I mean, not everybody's going to run out and start negotiating with right. you know, individuals barricaded. Uh, it could be useful for real life outside the job, but I want to get into that in a minute. But first, I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsors. Choose the handgun trusted by over 900 law enforcement agencies across the country. With Staccato, you can feel confident knowing you aren't sacrificing incredible accuracy for reliability. Whether you're protecting your family at home or on duty, Staccato has your back. Military and law enforcement receive discount pricing through the Staccato Heroes Program. Visit www.staccato2011-heroesprogram.com to learn more. That's Staccato, S-T-A. C-C-A-T-O 2011 backslash heroes dash program dot com. And we're back and I'm speaking with LAPD's Jonathan Pultz, and he is an author of Negotiating Like Lives Are on the Line. And I imagine, I know, Jonathan, you are a lifelong learner like me. And after all the training and experience necessary to become a good negotiator, it is a perishable skill, no? And you need to maintain them. It's probably a tough balancing act, especially for those in smaller agencies, maybe one that doesn't have a big training budget. Can you practice the everyday skills in everyday patrol settings, for example? Every day as a patrol officer, you run into people and usually their anger level is at a nine or a 10. And the best thing you can do is stay calm, ask them if they're all right, allow them an opportunity to vent, and you'll be surprised. You'll see them start to come down. They'll go from a 10 to a nine to an eight to all of a sudden you guys are on the same level. 
Hmm. And, and allowing people to do that is huge. And that's half the, the battle when you're doing crisis negotiation. So maybe it's a slow patrol night, right? Generally, you have coworker uh, issues that you can help mediate. You know, there, there's always stuff around the office that you can you can kind of interject in and, and try to listen and, and find solutions for. Uh, some of my favorite stuff that I like to tell people is, you know, we're completely bombarded by telemarketers. And we're getting close to that election season again, right? So you're always getting those calls. I'm all for it. People always like, oh, spam, hang up, you know, where they, they see it's a number they don't recognize. So if you really want to test these skills, I advise you to see if you can get one of these people on the line and keep them on the line for about 20 minutes, throw <laughs> them off their script, ask them all kinds of questions. And if you can keep them on for a long period of time without them hanging up on you, you're doing a good job because they're confused. They really don't know what's going on. But that's the big thing, right? It's it's you get a person in crisis. A lot of times they don't want to talk, uh, or they're angry, or they hate the police, or you or like we hear all the time. I just want you to go away. Keep them talking, and eventually they're going to open up. Importantly, find out about them because people love talking about themselves, and and that's all the stuff I I cover in the book, right? It's it's all stuff that can help you out there and help you with your interpersonal negotiations. And then obviously these skills will transfer out to if you're buying a car, if you're, you know, making any, any other big ticket per, uh, purchase, if you have trouble with your kids, if you have trouble with your significant other, other neighbor disputes, it's all basic communication. And it's, it's all there in the book. And, it, and it's all things that our brothers and sisters do on a daily basis. Uh, but maybe they just need a little bit of tweaking on it. Yeah, I mean the telemarketer uh comment <laughs> sound, it. <laughs> sounds like a Seinfeld episode. Uh okay, I'm going to use these skills. Uh next time I I see a Girl Scout selling cookies, I'm going to see if I can get two boxes for one. There you go. That's <laughs> it. Hey, what's the worst I can tell you, Jim? Is no, right? They tell you no. no. Right? But if you get those two boxes, you know, <laughs> it worked. <laughs> oh yeah, more likely she'll she'll raise the price on me. Right. So I'm sure you're aware and, you know, without mentioning any agencies, I'm sure you're aware of some agencies that have a policy. You you allude, alluded to it a minute ago about if there is an individual barricaded in their home alone without a hostage or actively engaged with others outside of their place, they're merely shut. You shut down the perimeter and you leave. Right. You show right. up. You show up, you set up a perimeter, you find out what's going on, you make this determination, you're pretty sure, I mean, there's no way to say absolutely there that he's by himself in there, but to your best of your knowledge and abilities, that's what you determine. And then you just, you know, whether you're the incident commander or the senior officer on the scene, you say, okay, per our policy, we are shutting down the perimeter, let's all go. Right. Let's, what are your thoughts on that? So tactical disengagement. So... I think sometimes there's some confusion because my understanding of the policy, at least with my agency, is if you have a crime, then, you know, then you have to, there's a governmental interest, right, to, to affect this arrest. Now, if you have a suicidal person who's not wanted for a crime, you know, they're inside their own residence, let's say they own their own gun, then, you know, we can talk to them and we can try to help them with their situation. And as law enforcement officers, you know, we we want to help people. You go into every interview for a new police officer, and that's the first thing they say, hey, I want to help people, right? I want to make the community better. So it, it's a little tough, I think, for officers to swallow. But 
from a liability standpoint. And then if you look at certain rulings like Hayes versus San Diego, the problem we're running into now is, are we trying to help and we're making a situation worse by going into it? So for example, like the, the, what I just talked about, a suicidal male who wants to kill himself inside the residence and we have no real legal justification to go in there. We go bursting in and all of a sudden he points that gun at the officers. Did we induce that situation? I mean, is there any reason why we couldn't have just stayed outside and talked to him? And, and like we talked about, unfortunately, we're, we're short-staffed as agencies and we make every effort to help these people. But sometimes, yeah, we have to break it down and maybe we'll leave a car outside and see if that person wants to talk later. But I think that, like I said, the confusion comes in where if someone's actually wanted for a crime and, and the severity of that crime obviously plays into it as well. Like if it's a, if it's a theft or something like that, then they, they probably will walk away. They won't even make it a barricade. They might just wait for the person to eventually come out. But depending on the severity of the crime, they, they should never break it down. But, you know, if they do, that's their agency and uh, at least just my opinion. But uh, from a liability standpoint, yeah, I think um, the disengagement causes some confusion because uh, people aren't as, as educated on their policies or the laws. And unfortunately, um, most people don't even realize that uh, according to my city attorney, that we're not even obligated as cities to provide a police department, right? It's a taxpayer want. And we do it because taxpayers and politicians, they, they want it and to serve the community. But um, at the end of the day, if we keep getting sued and we're getting you know our agency sued and our city sued for stuff that we're doing, it's just a natural progression of things. We just have to find a way to work better, work smarter, and keep our officers, you know, out of civil courtrooms because having been there, it's no fun. Yeah, no, I totally get you. And I've heard of so many cases like the one you described where right. we set up the perimeter, things aren't moving, somebody gets anxious, and then we go in and force a shooting. And it's it's been tenuous on whether or not we're protected with qualified immunity. So I think there's that expectation now that um, we don't force our way into these situations. Uh, I just see, I don't know if I'm 100% in agreement with that policy because I fear for the next responding officer and uh, maybe they don't have all of the information. Maybe they don't realize or maybe dispatch doesn't have uh, the record that you know, a week ago or two days ago, you responded out there to a, an armed individual and we, you know, we closed up the tent and, and left. And so that responding officer is kind of going into a situation where there may be some officer safety issues that they don't know about. Oh, I agree 100%. I, I look at like chain of custody of evidence, right? If you're going to pass off that situation, then there has to be a special alert or some sort of indicator that, hey, we've been here before. This is a suicidal, uh, you know, individual. Um, they have demonstrated potential tendencies of violence, you, you can't send those those responders into it blind. And unfortunately, you know, these things do happen and it, it can be dangerous, like you said, for not only the, our first responders, but the community. And if we're going to adopt this policy and stick with it, then we have to find ways to improve it and, and improve the flow of information because it's just going to continue to come up. And, and I think agencies uh, are are trying to do the best they can with it. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, policy comes from above. You're just 
following orders and and that's just the way it is but you know when you are on scene hopefully you can take advantage of the time you have to hopefully you know help that individual in need or talk that person out or figure out a creative resolution that can uh fix that situation because at the end of the day that's that's what we want we should make sure everyone's safe and and the community is served yeah and maybe it's just as simple as getting together with your emergency communications people to flag that address so if it comes up um that that information you know is triggered to to be uh, sent on to the responding officer it might be that simple right hey once engaged with the offender the subject whatever you want to call them uh, you are pretty much, you're doing your active listening, you are engaged, you're writing notes. Uh, how do you communicate with cover officers and incident commanders? Sometimes I know from personal experience, there's been a disconnect. And, uh, you know, on the perimeter, you might be the incident commander trying to figure out where are we with this? Where is it going? Is he still armed? Is there somebody inside? Are we progressing? Same with the cover officers on the perimeter. You know, it's like infielders on a baseball team, right? You get that one slow pitcher who just takes his time. And meanwhile, the, the infielders are falling asleep. And then there's a sharp line drive. Right. So how are you communicating? Do you have, are you texting? Are you using hand signals? What's going on? So um, working for a larger agency, we are fortunate and so when I negotiate negotiation, I'll start off saying it's team sport like anything else, right? You have your partners, you rely on them. So we start, we have a primary and a secondary negotiator. That secondary negotiator is writing down pertinent information. They're communicating out to either the tactical team. Uh, there's also a psychologist that is with us. Our behavioral uh, uh, science services psychologists are out there and they're making assessments, especially based on the amount of people we deal with with mental illness, um, kind of giving us directions to go. And a lot of times what we're finding is I would say probably 70% of our negotiations now, Jim, are either face-to-face -face or over loudspeakers, uh, bullhorns. The days of the throw phone and stuff like that are gone. And, and I always laugh at the throw phone, right? Because uh, when I came on the team, the throw phone looked like a suitcase. And I always said to myself, I'm not going to open that thing, <laughs> you know, right? So I, I never actually saw the throw phone work, but, you know, we spent thousands of dollars on it. We had it, um, you know, cell phones and social media text texting is a way that I, I will get attention of a lot of people as I'll try calling in. They usually won't recognize the number, so they won't answer. Texting will kind of get it going. And, but I would say probably, like I said, it's crazy, but 70% of my negotiation is going downrange, using a loudspeaker and conversing that way. Now, I know some of the listeners are probably thinking, well, you know, how can you hear your counterpart? And it kind of goes into the technology aspect. Uh, technology across law enforcement is just progressed by leaps and bounds in my 25 years. And uh, we have, you know, some of the uh, electronics, the, the robotics, they have the ability to communicate with one another uh, through that, like a speaker system. They have the ability to, to hear. And, and that makes our job a lot easier because we can be way back behind cover uh, with the team behind armor. We can send up, you know, robotic that has the ability to, to listen in real time. And we can converse either through the loudspeaker, through the robot and, and have that dialogue just like a telephone. And, and that's fantastic. And then you don't have to worry about, you know, getting disconnected or, or batteries going out. So 
technology has been really fantastic at that point and alternate means like now you know there's the social media aspect we've had a couple of negotiations where they've been on FaceTime or they've been on you know Instagram things like that as society changes and technology advances uh, law enforcement has to advance with it we can't be you know 10 steps behind we have to be right there with it in order to be effective and do our job yeah i'm good points across the board there technology you talk about that suitcase now i mean we're talking about a, a baseball that we can right. throw yep and uh yeah i mean i remember the days when we had to find a landline that went to the place or you know then we went to a cell phone and now Instead of that suitcase, there's the baseball. And, and yeah. without getting into detail, there's so many other great innovations. Oh, there is. And Incredible. Drones and, and everything else. Mm -hmm. Really advancing, um, you know, with technology. I want to wrap up and uh, wrap up with our, our own debriefing of sorts. Uh, when you're done, uh, hopefully it's a successful resolution and you are finally catching a breather you can go to the bathroom and then you have a debriefing i would guess that uh officer safety is tops in your debriefings um what other considerations are you frequently discussing i'm so glad you brought up debriefing and i know you're a big proponent of it. i've read some of your articles especially like on ics and talking about things from top to bottom we're very big on debriefing and whether the incident was uh, positive or negative, we go through everything from, you know, what information did you have when you arrived on scene? What questions did you ask, you know, the people, uh, family members or first responders who were here, uh, maybe the mental evaluation unit, you know, what information did you get? Uh, what techniques did you use? What was working? What wasn't working? You know, what are things that we could have done different? What are things that other people saw? You know, because we have, other negotiators uh, that are on scene, you know, I want their input. I want to see where I could have improved. Uh, I asked the, the suspect or the offender when they come out, you know, hey, you know, why'd you come out? How come you didn't want to talk to me? How come you did talk to me? You know, what were the things that I got through on? Um, what what was your decision that finally made you decide, hey, you know what, it's time, it's time to step on out. You know, so I look for every piece of information. I know the people on my team do. So, and I think that's what is going to make you better as an officer, as an agency, or whatever industry you're in, is take an honest look at what you've done from top to bottom, no matter how small the incident is, and, and break it apart, you know, piece by piece. Look at the things and honestly assess what you can do better. And the big thing for this to work properly is you need to throw out rank. You need to not worry about bosses. Everyone has to be on an equal playing field. The, the junior member and the most senior member have to be able to have an honest conversation because there are things that happen at the top and the bottom that are super important to the overall resolution and success of these missions. And if you disregard what's going on on the bottom end, whether, you know, certain officers need better equipment or, you know, they didn't like the position they're at, whatever it is, you know, these are all things that play into making that next incident better because that next incident may not go as well as this one did, or it might go worse than this one did. So you just got to find those areas that we can improve upon and help someone else out. And then you go back to, like we talked about training, where some of these officers may not get a lot of exposure. That's where they can get a lot of exposure is listening to debriefs and, and asking questions of people who've been in those situations. Learn from not only their successes, but more importantly, learn from their mistakes 
Ask them, what do you think you could have done better? And that will make them better negotiators and better police officers and better whatever it is they do. Yeah, 100%. And I know our tendency is to look at what went wrong. But I mean, you just pointed out what it's so important to point out what went right. And how can we duplicate that? So, you know, in a golf swing, <laughs> you, you know, we so concentrate on our last you know ball that we hooked or sliced. But you've got to celebrate those moments when you make that one right down the middle of the fairway and remember it, right? And celebrate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yep. And it builds confidence, right? Because this is not an easy thing. When they put you out there and everyone is watching you. And, and I've had negotiations where I'm talking to a wall for, you know, three, four hours. And, you know, I got to keep things going. And eventually I, I break through on that person. But uh, you know, police officers are known to maybe jab you in just a little bit. So, you know, there's that nervous factor where guys are like, oh, don't say something stupid or, you know, don't look silly. Um, you know, it's all, it's all in good fun, but it is, it's, it's, you're going up basically on stage in front of an audience and you don't want to say or, or do the wrong thing. And especially when we're talking about, you know, someone's life could potentially be in the balance. So you want to be well-prepared, well-versed, confident in your abilities, have a good game plan and a set of contingencies to act upon uh, as information comes up and changes because it's going to. And the better prepared you can be on the front end and the more comfortable you are with your skill sets, the more successful you're going to be. Well said. Can't can't top that. I just have to ask you, where can our listeners and our viewers find the book? So you can find the book, uh, again, Negotiating Like Lives Are on the Line. It's on Amazon, Audible. Uh, Apple Books, and you can find it uh, with my publisher at hellgatepress.com. Hey, thanks so much for taking time being on the show with us, Jonathan Paltz, SWAT team leader, crisis negotiator, author of Negotiating Like Lives Are on the Line, The Essentials of Crisis Negotiation for Use in Everyday Situations. I might use these uh, things, these tidbits, uh, next time I go buy a car. Thanks. John. Uh, I, hey, I hope so. It, it, it did wonders for me. The last one I bought. So <laughs> no, seriously, really good stuff. And to any officer, whether you want to be a crisis negotiator or not really good information in the book. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Jim. I appreciate you having me on. Hey, and to our listeners, check out Jonathan's uh, information and how to get the book on in our show notes. And thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you're interested in, who you are interested in seeing and hearing from. Drop me a line at policingmatters at policeone.com, policingmatters at policeone.com, and rate us if you can on Apple uh, Podcasts. And uh, hope to catch up with you again next time. Hey, stay safe, watch your six, and talk to you again real soon.